Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. This is your host, Sergio Glijar, joined by uh, co-host Misha Simanovsky. Hey there, Misha. Hello, Sergio, and hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Today we had Dr. Bridget O'Keefe. She is a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. She's a specialist on the history of late Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union, and also the author of the multi-ethnic Soviet Union and its demise. And that's precisely the book that we will be talking about today. Absolutely, and it was a fantastic conversation, starting off sort of with Bolshevik Revolution, ending with the dissolution of Russia, and discussing sort of the dynamics of ethnicity, race, and language in the Soviet Union and in Soviet policy over the course of essentially the 20th century. So without further ado... Listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, that's it. So thank you very much for being here, Dr. O'Keefe. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have our conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting and very timely publication indeed. So I believe that Misha has the opening question for us. Yes, Dr. O'Keefe. Could you kind of set the scene for what basically is the impetus for writing the book? So I live, I teach, I work in a very multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-racial place, right? I teach at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York, where there's like hundreds of languages spoken, dozens upon dozens of ethnicities represented on our campus and all of the rest. And I thought both because of the multi-ethnic nature of my campus, but also because of my abiding long-term research interests and because of a kind of, you know, intellectual project of wanting to teach Russian and Soviet history beyond the narrow confines in which it is too often and at, at all of our kind, to all of our detriment, taught across the country as a kind of Russian experience largely rooted in Moscow and St. Petersburg slash Leningrad. So about six or seven years ago, I developed a course at Brooklyn College called The Soviet Union is a Multi-Ethnic Empire. And as I was teaching it, I was, of course, right, inspired by and I had at my fingertips, right, a wealth of this extraordinary scholarship that my colleagues in Soviet history had developed especially in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's demise that gave us these kind of rich looks into how ethnicity was central to Soviet politics, to Soviet administration, to Soviet uh, economics, to culture, to social relationships, all of these different elements, all the various textures of everyday Soviet life. But what I was also thinking was that even had I wanted to assign to my students some tidy little text or a text that they can refer to, that there was nothing quite like it in existence. And so when my colleagues, Eugene Avrutin and Steve Norris, developed this Russian Shorts book series, which is designed to allow kind of scholars to bring to a more general audience an accessible window onto some central facet or central topic in Russian and Soviet history, I thought, well, here is a challenge, but here is also an opportunity, right? In the space of some 40,000 words, try to present to a general audience or to students the hows, the whys, and the whats of the centrality of ethnicity to Soviet life. So I, I dedicated the book to my students. I see my students in all of its pages. And in many ways, teaching this course over this past six years allowed me to kind of practice um, putting together the narrative that I ultimately put together in the format of this book. 
Dr. O'Keefe, what did ethnicity mean in practical terms for a Soviet citizen? And what was the ethnic composition of the USSR? Well, it's imperfect, but one of the things that we can do is take the early Soviet census themselves as a kind of window into how the Soviet government understood or tried to understand and grappled with and wrestled with the ethnic diversity all over this rather large and variegated landscape. So in the 1926 census, there were as many as 191 recognized official answers to which a Soviet citizen could give to this, what ultimately will become, what I argue, a central question of Soviet life. Who are you by nationality? So nationality in Soviet parlance is kind of the equivalent of what we would say in contemporary American life, ethnicity, right? Who are you by ethnicity? So in 1926, there were as many as 191 recognized official category options for answering that question. Russian, Chuvash, Gypsy, Samoyed, Tajik, Mountain Jew, <laughs> Tatar, foreign subjects. They even had an other, right? But the list represents, right, an extraordinary scope of all kinds of diversity, right? Ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, confessional diversity, diversity in how people understood themselves culturally as well. By the time the Soviets pursued their 1939 census, however, there was certain aspects of kind of governmental decision-making that had opted towards a more simplification of the process, a rationalization of all of this diversity. So by 1939, there are, according to the official Soviet bureaucratic terms, 62 official categories for ethnic belonging or national identification that are recognized by the state as official nationalities. Now, that's, that kind of gives us a glimpse into the extraordinary scope of ethnic diversity, but it doesn't really allow us to appreciate this larger question that you asked me and the question that has, me so, has had me so fascinated with this larger dynamic and problematic in Russian Soviet history for the entirety of my career, right? And that question is like, what did it actually mean to be an ordinary person living in a society in which self-identification as belonging to an ethnic group was unavoidable, was mandated, and had extraordinary consequences, whether you knew it or not from the get-go, for your fate as a Soviet citizen. And what I argue in the book is that ethnicity was central to Soviet history, and it was central to how ordinary people lived their lives. It could mean an unfortunate death sentence. It could mean a trip on a cattle car on a forced campaign of ethnic cleansing. It could also mean an array of tangible opportunities, right? It could mean preferential hiring. It could mean early admission to uh, an institution of higher education. It could mean an entryway, uh, a doorway into asserting oneself as a kind of what emerges in the 20s and 30s in particular, a kind of political entrepreneur, an ordinary Soviet system who is learning and feeling and seeing the writing on the wall that ethnicity has come to be this kind of defining category of Soviet life through which so much right, of, of their own individual lives and their collective lives will be overly determined, right? 
So the, the experience itself cannot be flattened into a singular experience, as I've already, as I've already intimated. Uh, but what I try to do in the book is to zoom in throughout into like individual life stories of ordinary Soviet people and how Soviet ethnic politics impacted the, the course, the trajectory of their lives as a way to give us an appreciation of the diversity of ways in which Soviet people felt ethnicity as this, again, unavoidable, but ultimately a central category of their lives. Fascinating. Fascinating. So so to zoom in a little more specifically on the beginning of this particular tale, I guess, the Bolshevik Revolution, you write in the book that the revolution both slammed some doors shut and burst others wide open. And you have a really interesting example with this uh, like sort of budding Romani union. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear a little bit more about those dynamics. Absolutely. So if you were in the 20s and 30s, a member of what in Soviet conversation was called a backward national group, so non-Russian and non-Slavic, right? Then that meant, according to the official Bolshevik framing of history, that under the conditions of czarist oppression, you as a minority people, your development had been stunted, you had suffered and, and endured the scourge of backwardness as a kind of expense that you were paid for the interests of Russian achievement and Russian advancement, ethnic Russian achievement. So what happens when the Soviets introduce what they call their nationality policy is they are saying to these non-Russian, ostensibly backward peoples, because you suffered so much under the czars, we're going to offer you now, right, as beneficiaries of the revolution, as ethnically marked beneficiaries of our socialist revolution, we're going to offer you tangible aid and special help so that you can become cultured and advanced under the Soviet umbrella. This was what the Bolsheviks called their nationality policy, right, in, in generic form. And its fundamental slogan was national in form, socialist in content. Now, this already presents a problem, right? Like a head scratcher. Like, why are Marxists making all kinds of ethnicity based promises? Why are they obsessing about ethnicity? Why are they investing so much in nationality? Well, their existence was precarious, right? They were hanging on by a thread for much of the early, early Soviet program. And so they had to like offer enticements to various sectors of the population to try to draw them in, to give them a stake in the building of socialism, of signing on to the Bolshevik program. And so what I talk about in this book, which was also part of, an, of my first book, was how this promise drew in a number of young Romani youths, right? Roma being the ethnonym for what has in the past times been more often discussed as a gypsy population. And in Soviet terms, they were also referred to by the ethnonym gypsies. But you have these young kind of up and coming Romani youths who start to appreciate in real world terms, right? There's an, there's an advantage to being a member of a backward ethnic group in the Soviet, in the Soviet Union. We can kind of claim these entitlements that are being offered to us. And we can also, right, use these entitlements to help develop the cause of our own ethnic group, but also to advance our specific careers. Already in the, in the mid-1920s, these youths had come together and they forged what was ultimately a short-lived, but ultimately for their larger trajectory, really important organization under Soviet auspices called the All-Russian Gypsy Union. And in the Gypsy Union, they kind of kept interfacing with Soviet officialdom and saying, 
you need kind of cultural experts to reach out to all these backward gypsies throughout the Soviet Union. And we can help, right? We can help mobilize the Romani population to get on board with building socialism. We can help create factories, create gypsy language schools, create a gypsy alphabet, all these things. And if we wanted to kind of zoom in in particular on the life story of one of these Romani youth, this would be the, the case of a young man in the 1920s whose name was Alexander Germano. And what I did, and I did this for the first book, but I brought him back for this book because the story is so emblematic in this way. But I kind of traced the lineage of his, all the various autobiographic statements that he produced and wrote in all of his bureaucratic encounters with the Soviet state throughout his lifetime from the early 1920s up until his death in, in the early 1950s. And what I found was that you could trace through the progression of his own individual autobiographic statements, the kind of dawning realization of the opportunities that were offered to people like Germano and other non-Russian minorities, the kind of awakening to the importance, the centrality of ethnic politics. And what I found was that Germano, first, he would write these autobiographies and fill out questionnaires for the Soviet state. He downplayed his ethnicity. But around the time that he joined the All-Russian Gypsy Union, you could see, right, this like, whoa, like belonging to a quote unquote backward minority ethnic group gives me a leg up. It gives me a stake. It gives me an opportunity to kind of maneuver and navigate and potentially chase after all these kind of opportunities that might not otherwise be available to me if I were not a so-called member of a backward minority group. And so around the mid-1920s and definitely in the early 1930s, Germano starts to just emphasize with extraordinary focus the centrality of his ethnicity to his larger arc as a Soviet citizen, right? I, an oppressed gypsy, came from nothing, reborn during the revolution, and now I have this opportunity to spread Soviet enlightenment to my fellow backward gypsies. And this has given the kind of full meaning to my life's, my life's work and my professional work as, as a writer of Soviet short stories and Soviet poetry. Now, this, this had tangible benefits for Germano, right? It not only kind of got him a seat at the table in terms of how the Soviet was managing various policies directed at the Romani population of the Soviet Union, but also gave him professional opportunities. He was the first playwright at the world's first gypsy theater, which was established in Moscow during Stalin's first five-year plan. And it also opened up to him these prized opportunities to publish his literary work and it afforded him an opportunity to join this illustrious organization, the Union of Soviet Writers. And he was, in fact, in the 1930s and the 1940s, celebrated as the Soviet Union's premier gypsy writer. Now, the kind of capstone of Germano's life that is also really interesting is that he realized after World War II that kind of banquet of opportunities that early Bolshevik nationality policy had afforded him and other other representatives of um, non-Russian minority groups had started to wither, right, and had started to contract. And he also saw that the Soviet state before the war and during the war had elevated, again, Russianness as to kind of like the height or the pinnacle, the leading, the leading social force of this multi-ethnic citizenry. And in one of the last autobiographies that he wrote for the Soviet state, he edited his life story 
And he claimed that he was, in fact, not a gypsy, but that he was a Russian, but a Russian who had given his life in this kind of patriotic upsurge to trying to help uplift and to advance an unfortunate and benighted ethnic group that he had some kind of affinity towards. So I think Germano's life is singular in a lot of ways. I think I think that kind of maneuvering that he was able to accomplish in late in life was a pretty singular and dramatic example of a larger project of Soviet self-fashioning. But the early years where Germano kind of awakens to and realizes and grabs on to the array of potentially opportunities for self-advancement that his positionality as a member of a non-Russian ethnic group affords us, speaks to a much larger dynamic, right? He's one of many, right? And there are others who I, whose stories I, I offer in miniature in the book, who saw in the Bolshevik Revolution, and in particular, this promise of aid and uplift in the form of nationality policy as an opportunity to not just become so Soviet, but to become somebody special within the Soviet, within the Soviet Union. That's fascinating. I, re I really like this idea of the opening of the door for political entrepreneurship after the Bolshevik. That's really interesting. Really interesting. So what about some of the doors that were that were slammed shut by the Bolshevik Revolution? Oh, there were plenty of doors slammed <laughs> shut as well, right? I mean, in some ways, the irony is, is that we're probably most often led to guess that like the experiences of Roma throughout Europe in the early 20th century were, of course, going to always be negative, right? In the Soviet case, we have instead a kind of positive exa example of opportunities for integration and advancement. But if you look at the experiences of, in fact, an array of ethnic groups within the Soviet Union, they found that their ethnicity marked them, right, as a kind of stigma, as a stain, especially as kind of Soviet ideological imperatives or geopolitical concerns or, or military worries evolved and, and captivated the state's imagination and directed the nature of Soviet policies targeted at ethnic groups who were deemed as potential or very real enemies of the Soviet state, enemies by virtue of their ethnic affiliation. So just to give you a, a kind of taste, I think that even at the same time that we see someone like Germano in the early 1930s kind of galloping ahead and chasing all of his professional goals because he has a leg up as, as a member of a so-called backward ethnic group. You also, at the, at the, in those very same years, you have peoples of Ukraine dying en masse in, in the form of starvation, right, in terms of the Holodomor that was a result of express state policies in the context of collectivization, right? And just thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians starving during the collectivization drive. We could also switch to another egregious and grim story at the heart of collectivization and look at the Kazakh famine, right? Likewise, where in the, in the work of Sarah Cameron, the extraordinary work of Sarah Cameron, it has been revealed, right, 40% of the Kazakh Republic's population died as a result of starvation born of the kind of rapacious and insatiable and purposefully violent policies of, of the Soviet regime. But there was also periodically throughout Soviet history campaigns of express ethnic cleansing. 
In the years leading up to World War II, as Stalin and other members in the Politburo are increasingly, and not without good reason, nervous about the threat of Nazi Germany, there is not just a general paranoia about enemies within that we associate with the purges and terror, but the purges and terror also had distinctively ethnic dimensions. And several ethnic groups were marked by the Soviet state as if not already enemy groups, enemy populations, right? Like intrinsically, they were enemies of the Soviet state. They were marked as enemy populations or enemy groups because they had the potential in the, in the event of a Nazi invasion to serve as fifth columns, right? So on the eve of World War II, during the purges and terror, some 800,000 Soviet citizens will be victims of ethnic cleansing campaigns, Finns, Koreans, Poles, ethnic Germans who will be torn from their homes and their landscapes and uh, relocated to distant locations elsewhere in the Soviet Union in attempt to both kind of denationalize, but to kind of immunize the ethnic threat that the Soviet state believed that they represented. These same logics are, and these same tactics of ethnic cleansing that were sharpened on the eve of the war, were replicated and pursued again in the context of World War II. While the Soviet Union is desperately trying to defend itself in World War II, a great deal of effort will be put into, again, these targeted ethnic cleansing campaigns, internal deportations of Chechen people, Crimean Tatars, again, Poles, ethnic Germans, some of a a kind of series of ethnic groups, and it's an unfortunate phrasing, who become Precisely because of their ethnicity, they're their presumed usual suspects of potential or very real subversion and thereby represent a threat to to the Soviet state. I think another kind of example that we can see or through which we can chart how the revolution both burst open doors of opportunity to non-Russian populations and also slammed them shut. A kind of striking case is the, the Soviet history of Jewishness, right? In the 1920s and the 1930s, I write about this in the book, right? Many young Jews saw in the promises of the revolution and the promises of nationality policy, all kinds of opportunities, much like Germano did, right? Tens of thousands of Jews will move to Leningrad and Moscow. They will go to university. They'll become doctors, experts, engineers, right? And they're kind of, in a a striking way in the 20s and 30s, you can see that many young Jews were the tangible beneficiaries of this Soviet nationality policy. But once, starting in the late 1930s, and it worsens thereafter, the Stalinist state gives at least tacit support to popular anti-Semitism. And once popular anti-Semitism is not just, right, kind of overlooked or allowed to exist, but is given tangible state support, you see many of those early gains that some Jewish Soviet citizens enjoyed in the 1920s and 1930s kind of morphing in in terrifying form into a freight of liabilities, right? Ethnic liabilities starting in the 50s, definitely in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. A lot of Jewish citizens will be denied job opportunities, educational opportunities, this time because they are Jews, right? And the other element of the Jewish story in the Soviet, in the larger arc of Soviet history is the kind of singular nature of of how Jews did ultimately starting in very small numbers in the 60s, but in growing numbers, 70s, 80s, and especially in the 1980s, the early 1990s, ultimately have access in some measure to exit visas, to 
emigrate abroad. And for many Soviet Jews who pursued that option, right, they understood this painful, painful question, this painful question, do we stay or do we go, as an attempt to escape in anti-Semitism that in the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviet state had said was incompatible with Soviet internationalism, and that after the war became a kind of painful and very explicit and defining feature of everyday Soviet life. Yes, and to kind of jump off of what you were saying, that some nationalities were more marginalized than others, and some had more difficult time coping with the discrimination by the Soviet state. Could you describe how did the role of ethnicity evolve throughout the history of the USSR? For instance, how did Stalin's ethnic policies, which are a great treasure in themselves, differ from those of Lenin, Brezhnev, and Gorbachev? How did ethnicity play a different role in people's lives uh, during those times? Sure. I actually think that one of the key dynamics for understanding what I've been calling the larger arc of Soviet history in terms of the centrality of ethnicity to Soviet life. I think one of the key dynamics that historians have only recently really reckoned with and really grasped with, but very productively and have pointed our attention to, is how ethnicity in the Soviet Union over time became racialized. And ethnicity went from being in the early revolutionary years from the Bolshevik perspective as a vehicle that could be instrumentalized in pursuit of Soviet state interests, getting minority populations to buy into the revolutionary project, mobilizing a diverse population, uniting a diverse population, and also assimilating all these different groups to the new Soviet ideology. How ethnicity or nationality went from being a vehicle, right? An empty category to which the Bolsheviks pinned certain hopes and dreams, how it hardened over time into a category of Soviet life that operated and that was understood in what we can very productively call essentialized, racialized forms. When the Bolsheviks first said, all right, we're going we're gonna to offer nationality policy, national form, socialist in content, we're going to give all kinds of tangible state aid and opportunities to non-Russian peoples. They did not anticipate that nationality as a category of Soviet life would be a category or an essential category of the communist future, right? In actual fact, they thought once we use this category, once we use this vehicle of ethnic politics to get all these people on board, to get them mobilized, to advance them, to, so to Sovietize them, that nationality would also wither away. It would become obsolescent. Nationality would have no place in the future communist society. Like the party itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A lot of things that the Bolsheviks anticipated would wither away into obsolescence as, the, as Soviet society approximated and climbed closer and closer to the achievement of real communism. Nationality does not wither away. It becomes something not a kind of empty vehicle that the state can instrumentalize or mobilize. It becomes, even from a kind of ideological perspective on the part of the Soviet state, it becomes something real. It has content. And in the 1920s and the 1930s, in fulfillment of the logic of national form, socialist and content, 
you see a lot of real world fetishization of elements of so-called ethnic culture. All across the Soviet Union, you see the creation of different national theaters, right? A Ukrainian national theater, a gypsy national theater, a Tajik Uzbek. In short term, right, this is the Soviet Union benevolently uplifting and advancing the national cultures of its non-Russian peoples. But by the, the very same logic, this promoted the idea that there was an Uzbek way to dance and there was an Uzbek way to behave and there was an Uzbek way <laughs> a distinctively and an almost aggressively fetishized way, right? There was an Uzbekness that was real, essential, and primordial, right? Something that Uzbeks are born with. So the kind of paradox is that the Bolsheviks, when they first adopt this policy, were amongst themselves adopting what seems in some ways almost like a very postmodernist approach to ethnicity. Like these are imagined things that, <laughs> that human beings have invested a lot of meaning to and how we should use this to our maximum advantage. They go from this kind of position of skepticism about ethnicity as something real as to promoting these cultural and social and political and even economic dynamics that fuel a transition into an embrace of ethnicity as something not just real, not just unavoidable, but something inescapable and primordial. And it becomes racialized, despite the fact that the Soviet state will pride itself from start to finish as being an internationalist society that has set itself apart, especially from its capitalist counterparts, in its devoted and sincere commitment to anti-racism. But we all know, right? We all know and our listeners know, just because someone says they're an anti-racist does not mean that they have effectively escaped racialized thinking or racist mindsets, right? I think this has been one of the most productive lines of inquiry in the historiography in recent years. And I can think of several scholars who have who have really led the way in prompting Soviet historians to, to look behind that claim of Soviet anti-racism and to investigate again, right? This is something that you can actually only get at when you study the lived ordinary dynamics of ethnic politics in Soviet society and to examine the experiences of racism and to examine the kind of trajectory, the evolution of ethnicity into a racialized category of Soviet life. So just a shout out to a few of these scholars. Um, Jeff Sahadeo's brilliant book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, has been huge. And uh, Adrian Edgar's work on um, the children of inter-ethnic marriages in the Soviet Union have been really key, right? These are two great social historians and who used oral histories in particular to extraordinary effect to allow us to see and to recognize some of these perhaps unexpected dynamics on the ground of late Soviet life. Yeah, that's that's truly remarkable. This, uh, like you said, this this shift from what is clearly a extremely progressive postmodern sort of take on ethnicity, almost backwards, then into something that sounds more like it was written by Nikolai Berdyaev, or like this sort of weird late eighteen hundreds geographical determinism. Sort of remarkable. How do you? 
how do we account for for the I don't know what to call it. I guess the slippage there from the one position was it just Stalin? Was it the experience of the Second World War? Obviously, the Great Patriotic War uh, in Russia, which was obviously a massive mobilization effort mm-hmm. that required the resources of everybody and a existential defense. Uh, so, well, yeah, where from? <laughs> <laughs> where from? I think the answer I'm going to give you is an answer that that kind of syncs well with a, a lot of the gains that we've had in particular through the kind of social history that has expanded our horizons and expanded our understandings of Soviet history writ large. Lenin's important. Stalin is exceedingly important. I'm not going to be the person that tries to deny any of that. But I think that as important for understanding this story, this evolution, this slippage, how something that was understood to be like an empty vehicle or a strategy for Bolshevik success becomes over time into this fundamental category of Soviet life that is understood and talked about and thought through in these very racialized terms that we have to also look at how ordinary people participated in building Soviet society. If we go back to the first part of our conversation, if we think about their germanos in Soviet life, about the millions of people across the Soviet Union who in the 1920s and 1930s were not just learning to speak Bolshevik, but learning to think with and think through ethnicity, who were required to identify as belonging to a distinct ethnicity, who saw with their own eyes and in their own individual lives the power that that category could have for their past, their present, and their future, we see that millions of Soviet people mobilized, they also internalized, right? And they shaped also their own own meanings, right? They mapped their own meanings of the significance of ethnicity onto their own life stories, but also onto the wider Soviet story. There's no kind of policy moment. There's no decision making from on high, right? Oop, let's step back from our idea that nationality would become obsolete once we approach communism. And let's instead hold fast to this essentialized primordial version. Instead, I think what happens is the slow creep and the the invasiveness into all of the textures of everyday life of how how important this category was into a way that it became... It became unthinkable for Soviet citizens themselves to imagine a world in which ethnicity was not front and center. So if in the 1920s, a lot of what is happening on the ground is that many Soviet citizens are having for the first time to identify as belonging to an ethnic group. Already, right, by the post-war era, you have most Soviet citizens who would find it inconceivable to be asked to not think of themselves in distinctively ethnicized terms, right? So I think that there's ideology, there's government, there's geopolitics, there are all these different elements. But I think that that story and that evolution is as much about shifting ideological imperatives and state interests as it is about the dynamics of everyday life and how ordinary people are also essential to making our worlds, right? To making our cultures, to making our societies. And, you know, a lot of times we do these things not with a conscious effort or a conscious build, right? I mean, some somebody like Germano who jumped onto the train and started emphasizing his ethnicity was certainly not anticipating that he would contribute to a kind of creeping racialization of ethnic categories in Soviet life. But it's all of these miniature everyday actions, behaviors, rituals, and norms that start to accrete, right, and add up and build 
and to and to morph into a different dynamic. Obviously, something very relevant to ethnicity and also something that has sort of reemerged, at least for the Western observers in high relief recently, is the issue of language specifically. I mean, I think the majority of the United States has recently learned of the word Kiev as opposed to Kiev, right? So I would be I would be very interested to learn about sort of the the employment of language as a as an instrument in all of this by the Soviet authorities, right? Like Russian language schools and language policy in general, because I mean, again, the language policy issue is very prominent right now, both from the Ukrainian end and from the Russian end, as far as I can tell. Absolutely. All right. So in brief, right, what I will say uh, uh, from the get go is, you know, I say this book is about ethnic politics and Soviet life. A huge chunk of ethnic politics and Soviet life was about language politics. And it was from the start, a very distinct prong of this early Soviet approach to nationality policy these promises that were made to non-Russian peoples, a lot of them centered on a promise to incorporate and to allow and to advance non-Russian languages. In terms of educational policy, it was at least promised on paper in early Soviet life. Wherever you can assemble 25 school-aged children, they are entitled legally to an education in their native tongues, right? But already by the 1930s, even these language promises got unwieldy, right? Both from the perspective of the Soviet state that didn't have all the textbooks they needed. They didn't have all the human resources we needed, right? This is a smaller story of a much broader Soviet story of like grandiose visions and <laughs> uh, impoverished realities, right? So the Soviet state found its, it found it for itself. It was already a hassle to make all of these promises of like the free flowing <laughs> to conduct business and to conduct education in, in these different people's native non-Russian languages. But there was also what we what historians started to see in the 1930s is that many of the parents of non-Russian children were also kind of clamoring for their children to be taught in the language of the state, to be taught in the language of what they understood to be the language of guaranteed Soviet success, right? If my kid wants to make it in this new Soviet civilization, they're going to need Russian. So some of the kind of pushback against native language education, too, came from ordinary Soviet citizens themselves. But there was also, in terms of policy shifts, there is a policy shift at the end of the 1930s where the Stalinist state will mandate the instruction of all Soviet children in the Russian language. However, this can be as a language of separate study, right? So let's say you're in a Kazakh school and it's a Kazakh language school. The mandate was not you have to automatically shift to a full day's instruction in Russian language, but that Russian must be taught to all Soviet children. And when this policy shift takes place, Stalin's actually pretty explicit about the policy goal behind it. In the context of the military, at the front, Logistically, we need our soldiers who are going to represent the multi-ethnic diversity of our very diverse land to be able to effectively communicate with one another, to give orders, to take orders, to follow orders, right? So there was um, a kind of distinctive military logic. Now, from start to finish, if you were a member of a recognized non-Russian Russian nationality in the Soviet Union, you did have a right to conduct a variety of your public and educational and certainly your private affairs in your non-Russian native language. But it gets complicated. I think of this extraordinary book by my colleague, Krista Goff, who looks at how in the Azeri Soviet Socialist Republic, you have 
Azeris who basically want to insist that the minority peoples within the Azeri Republic also must assimilate to the language of the Azeri nation, right? Which leads to the kind of flattening out or the denial of certain linguistic and all kinds of other cultural and educational opportunities to non-Azeri, non-Russian peoples within this politics. So it's, it, it, it's super, super, it's super, super complicated. And I think, too, of the work of another scholar, another colleague of ours, Anna Whittington, who has looked at how when things start to fall apart during perestroika, you have a lot of ethnic Russians who are very suddenly aggrieved at the notion that they might be expected or prompted to be able to learn or understand languages other than their own, which they understood to be the language of the Soviet state and the language of the superior first among equals within this multi-ethnic Soviet Union. I wanted to ask you to kind of connect uh, the two parts of your book, of, of the title of the book, especially did the multi-ethnic nature of the USSR contribute to, to its disintegration? Was it kind of a ticking bomb that was slowly destined to go off at some time because the dream of friendship of the peoples were, was never truly realized? And Slavic peoples and Central Asian peoples and peoples of the uh, Caucasus and, and others in Siberia and other places could never truly live together in this utopian world. This is a great question. So <laughs> I'm going to wear my historian's hat very proudly and say that I'm exceedingly allergic to arguments that things are inevitable, right? So <laughs> it's not my actual argument that the nature of Soviet ethnic politics made the Soviet Union's demise inevitable. I do think that the nature and the realities that the dynamics of Soviet ethnic politics certainly contributed in a very momentous fashion to the way in which the Soviet Union collapsed and how. But in terms of ticking time bomb, I don't really hear the ticking time bomb. I don't I don't interpret the larger arc of Soviet history in this way, that it was like this time bomb waning to go off and it just needed right like the, a moment of spark. But I do think that once, once, of course, the Soviet Union tangibly started falling apart and tangibly started disintegrating before people's very real and very astonished eyes in late 1991, there was an intuitive, right, an almost intuitive move towards nationalist politics that the prior decades of Soviet mandates, Soviet reinforcements, Soviet amplifications of ethnic politics made likely, right? And made, made intuitive. But if, if again, um, I were to push back on the, the ticking time bomb kind of metaphor, I think if you look at just the shift across 1991 itself, we sometimes underappreciate the results of that March 17th, 1991 referendum, right? Things are very unhappy in all different kinds of ways for the Soviet people in, 1970, in 1991. People know things have to change. The question is how and how do we do this? And how do we do this with minimum disruption and minimum chaos? 
But in March of 1991, Gorbachev put it before the Soviet people in a referendum from which six of the Soviet socialist republics refused to participate, which is also important. But he posed it as a referendum to the Soviet population. Do you want to retain the form of the union, right? Do you want us to stay together? And the overwhelming majority of Soviet people, despite their uh, skepticism, despite their unhappiness, despite their wariness, despite the exhaustion of the times, <laughs> the chaos of the times, the overwhelming majority of those who participated in that referendum responded overwhelmingly, yes. And I think here is a kind of classic moment when you see <laughs> talking about doors bursting open and other doors bursting or being closed shut. I think the contingent force, right, the impact of that August coup is absolutely essential for the bursting open of the doors into shifting from reimagining Soviet politics into pursuing a post-Soviet national nationalist nation-based future outside of the Soviet Union is absolutely key. I think that the ethnic politics, the frustrations, the limitations, the inequities, the hierarchies, the way in which it allowed some people opportunities, but it denied others opportunities, I think that all played out in enormously consequential fashion once that process of disintegration right, was in place. But I wouldn't argue that ethnic politics per se precipitated the collapse of the Soviet Union, but they certainly predominate in terms of the shape and the force and the dynamics of that disintegration. Fantastic. I think that's a very appropriate place to leave it. What do y'all think? I think so too. And I actually hope that someone writes the next Russian shorts book where they look at after after the collapse of the Soviet Union and thinking about these things. This would also be an essential and timely and, and welcome book. So I hope someone will write that. No, absolutely. Yes. You've written part one. Now we need part two and the prequel as well. Ethnic relations in the Tsardom. How about absolutely, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, Michelle Cut. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Happy holidays. All right. You too. You too. Thanks again. Don't jump. She was great. Yeah, that was amazing. And like it was left, great. The, the left she, part, she just yeah. she just goes, and it's all perfect. Like it's coherent. It's it's almost like she's reading off a script, but she's I think she just has it so well. Yeah.